Hello and welcome to the World at War Weekly. My name is Matt Hotchberg and this is a episodic look at one of my absolute favorite documentaries, The World at War. In each episode, we're going to look at the episode at hand and talk about what the episode had in it. It's really a celebration of the series as being really one of the best documentaries ever and also a critical look at World War II in general. And before we even get into this, we have to start out, why are we doing this? This is probably the most common question I think people probably wonder about. And it's really about, first of all, World War II. Personally, I've always found World War II incredibly intriguing from a conflict standpoint. There is so much in this war. It's, it's, uh, it's a look at really good versus evil. It is a conflict in which there is so much change. It involves the entire world, as the name implies. I mean, it really does involved so many of the great powers of the world. It had so many ramifications before, during, and after the war. And I think also it's also a modern conflict in some senses. Obviously, we're a considerable amount of decades removed from the conflict. But still, it's a little more tangible than talking about wars of, you know, the, the classical periods or medieval wars or any other kind of conflicts. This is a war that really has shaped our world here even so here in, in, in 2016 and beyond, because its legacy remains and still is something that we I think we talk about culturally and, and it be, it's still a great part of the conversation and, and really kind of a reference point for a lot of people when you talk about politics, the world in general, and certainly any kind of wars that uh, ever erupt. I mean, World War II is uh, the arguably, I mean, you know, the kind of conflict that, We'll look back on, you know, centuries from now and really say this was a critical, pivotal point in human history. And I've always found it really interesting. Um, personally, I've always thought it was really a, a, just again, a, a really fundamentally different kind of conflict, but also because there was so much going on that I really was attracted to the idea of learning more. I could never get enough about learning about World War II. And I've watched a number of documentaries over the years, movies, fictional and non-fictional. And, you know, you often struggle finding a good balance of information and entertainment. And that's kind of the name of the game. And certainly, I've always been very critical of documentaries that have been coming out in the last 20 or so years. Because so many of them focus on, I think, uh, certainly the, the role of the United States, which is a major part of the war, but not the entire part of the war. And I think, honestly, a lot of the documentaries that come out these days are more about, they focus on specific parts of the conflict and then completely glaze over other aspects of it. And they're more interested in the entertainment aspect of it rather than the informational. Because to me, a documentary is about telling a story. And it may not, it doesn't have to be a Hollywood blockbuster. It doesn't have to be something that, you know, you don't have to include uh, sex appeal and, uh, you know, the, the kind of entertainment that you might find in, in other types of televised formats. I think that all too often when you watch documentaries, especially any ones that come out in the last 10, 15 years, you're going to find a lot of times these recreations that are nice and cute. But again, they spend a whole lot of time, you know, trying to build up something and they quickly go over the, the climax of it, moving on to something else and skip again so much of the war. And there's so much that happened in World War II that, I mean, quite honestly, even the World of War documentary can't cover it all. But I feel the World of War did the best job at covering it all because there is so much going on in this uh, in this in this war and in, in the series in general they really did a phenomenal job in terms of trying to 
do it all. And this series came out in 1973, and it was a documentary that has a number of different episodes. We're going to go episode by episode looking at it. And and what I love about it, when, if you watch, ideally what you'll do if you've if you've never seen this before is watch the episode and then listen to this as kind of a compendium that follows the the episode to talk about what was you know what was discussed and what we saw in the episode. But that being said, the my my other hope is that you'll also learn something from this because this is I think one of the best documentaries. I mean, if you're whether you're new to World War II in general or you've you've seen it all before as well, I think this is one of the best looks at it because it was made in 1973. So it's not that far removed from the end of World War II. It's not, has not been 30 years since the end of the war. And there's still a number of high-ranking officials. When you look at documentaries made in the 90s, in the 2000s, you're really talking to people that were teenagers back then. This is only people that are left alive, you know, just nature of the, of the beast. And here you've got generals, you have policymakers, and and to me, that alone makes this documentary a whole lot better. But again, it's not about trying to tell personal stories, which aren't bad. There's a, there's a place for those. But it's more about really retelling how and why of World War II. And that's what's so interesting to me. So we're going to go through this, and I hope that this will be entertaining for you as much as it was for me to watch. I've seen The World at War probably four times straight through i've certainly picked up random episodes here and there when i just needed to watch something and I, you know i'm in front of the computer and eating lunch and wanted something to watch so i'd pop on a random episode certainly the episodes have been shown on different tv networks over the years and in fact if you want to watch these episodes pretty much all the episodes are available on sites like youtube and daily motion i'm not sure how legal that is but i can tell you they've been on there forever and uh, but of course if you really do enjoy it, you should probably buy it i buy my copy at home as well so Nonetheless, let's start with uh, the with this uh, with episode one, a new Germany, nineteen thirty three to nineteen thirty nine, and I'll read the synopsis that I could find about this episode, and it says this is really simple: stricken by humiliating defeat and emerging from deep economic depression, Germany responds to the hopes and promises of regained pride and prosperity seemingly offered by Adolf Hitler. And this episode is absolutely about that's a great synopsis because it's really just about. Hitler, his rise, and how he went from politician to dictator into right into World War II. And when we're talking about the series, there's a number of themes involved. And I think it's important because you're gonna you're gonna see these themes brought back time and time again. There may be some new ones that aren't even included in this list that I have here, but the the themes that I came up with just purely off the top of my head and also through the uh watching episode one there's a couple. Number one, the Treaty of Versailles. You will quickly learn the Treaty of Versailles is really the pretext for everything that Hitler does. It is a source of and solution to all of Germany's problems, or at least that's what Germany uh, uses as, or that's what they say at least. The other, another theme, and this is something that we're going to talk about throughout the series, was the war ever winnable for the Axis powers? Very debatable. Uh, something that, I mean, you there is no answer, but Something that, as we go through here, you have to almost at the end of every episode think, was the war ever winnable? And it's something that I have a theory about it. I have an opinion on it. We'll talk about it later in the in the series. But I want you just to be thinking about that as well. Also, mistakes made. And this will be true for both sides, not just by Germany and the Axis powers, but by the Allies as well. And in this episode, it's mostly the mistakes made by the Allies, as you'll see. And lastly, uh, the Holocaust. Certainly, you cannot look at World War II without without talking about the Holocaust, a major part of this conflict, unfortunately, one of the saddest parts of human history, and we start to see how it shapes 
into the conflict and how it becomes part of World War II, despite the fact of having absolutely no, you know, uh, significant uh, point to it in the sense of advancing Germany's gains or foothold. And it's it's really, I in this episode especially, it's really interesting to look at how it how it all begins. And really, this episode is about how it all begins. How do we get from post World War One? into World War II. And you have to understand where Germany is coming from. This is a Germany that has come out of World War I defeated. The Treaty of Versailles essentially stripped out the monarchy. It created a new republic of Germany. and But it's also come at a terrible cost to the Germans economically, politically, and really in every aspect. I mean, Germany is a broken country. It has It owes a tremendous debt financially to the Allied powers. It's had much of its territory stripped away. And these are a defeated people. Just, I mean, not, not even, I'm not even talking about the army. I'm talking about, you know, culturally, personally. These are people that are, you know, you have to understand where Germany was prior to World War One. Germany was one of the leading European powers of the world. Germany was a, a nation that was, you know, I mean, they, they were involved in a number of conflicts, but the, the, the German Empire was a major power. I mean, it's almost like talking about today. If you look at, you know, France or Europe in in that kind of conversation, even even Russia, that's the kind of conversation we're talking about. Germany here in 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 uh, prior to World War One, and their role in World War One uh, caused them to uh, to be in this situation. So let's start with the beginning of the, the episode. And if you start watching the episode, one of the first things I notice, and this is I. I love the intro to the world at war. So you watch this and you're expecting, I don't know, you're expecting probably to see Nazis or, or bombing. I don't know what you're expecting to see. But they start off with a very chilling intro. I have seen this intro, again, probably a number of, uh, half a dozen times easily. And it is incredibly chilling. The reason why is they do this aerial view of this town in France called Orador sur Glen. I'm not, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right. And they show you a look at this town in France where a massacre occurred uh, during the war, um, they the the conflict uh, it, it, it's one of like just you know it's it's almost a footnote in the war really. I mean it's a very small little uh, town, but on June tenth, nineteen forty four, this village in in uh, France was uh, was occupied by the Nazis, but it was destroyed when six hundred forty two of its inhabitants, including women and children, were massacred by a Nazi Waffen SS company, and. The French president at the time, Charles de Gaulle, ordered the original town. They built, they rebuilt the new town next, next door, but they retained this destroyed town as a permanent memorial and museum to how brutal this war was. And the series uses this town as, as an example, as an exhibit A of this was no ordinary conflict. This was not just a border conflict. This was not a typical couple of armies running into each other fighting for a couple of years and then saying, okay, well, that's the end of it. You know, we'll sign a peace treaty. This was a total war. And you will see this throughout the series. And they use this town as the example of this of this uh, massacre of showing just that kind of brutality. And, again, going back to why the series, to me, is so interesting, that this kind of intro totally says. And also, it's important to note, I love the, the theme music. The theme music is uh, dark. Uh, it, it's, it, 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 it kind of touches upon a number of different tones of the series, but it's very dramatic. And to me, 
the especially the ending of it when it it comes out dun 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 you know and it's it's that very um somber ending to it i think it really sets a when you watch it and you hear it there's no words to it it's just music and you see imagery on your screen you really get the sense of this is not a lighthearted documentary this is not going to be something that is going to uh glaze over aspects of the war this is a documentary to show off just how brutal a conflict this was and really show it all so we start off with the rise of hitler and in fact we we kind of we skip over a lot, almost all of the beginnings of the end of world war 1 and you know the the 20s we go right into 1932 the nazis are a political party the national socialists hitler is their leader and interesting, the first thing they say is you know really that Hitler and the Nazis were giving some power, but really a lot of politicians in Germany thought they were controllable. You know, it was something like, well, they couldn't ignore them. They had too much support to be ignored. So it was almost a, you know, they were being placated by saying, okay, we'll give you some power here. So that'll just basically shut them up, right? Like, okay, you guys go over here. You do your thing. But you know what? This is still the government. You're not going to do much. You're not going to be able to take over. You know, this is, you're going to have to work within the confines of it. And maybe you, they'll, maybe they'll even erode away. You never know about that. And, you know, one of the mis- one of the themes we talk about, and we're going to talk about a lot, are mistakes made. And one of the first ones, early, early on, are made by the German people and the politicians in general. And that is they they put t- way too much faith in the German president Paul von Hindenburg. He's a uh, former uh, general in the German army from World War One, and he is the president. And you have to understand, there's two major uh, roles in German government at this time: the president and the chancellor. And the president holds much of the power. The chancellor does kind of more of the day-to-day stuff, whereas the president is in charge of the army, but also is a major force. And certainly, I mean, if Hitler were to try anything here at this point in terms of a, of a takeover, it would not have gone very far because the uh, theoretically, at least, <laughs> Hindenburg was at the head of the government and still, quote-unquote, in charge. And the what the mistake was not only placing faith in him be, not because Hindenburg was a bad guy or anything like that the the mistake was he Hindenburg really did nothing to resist Hitler's move to become a dictator Hitler enacted a number of different uh laws and and emergency actions and Hindenburg did nothing uh, first of all the, you have the the fire at the Reichstag where following that Hitler used that as an excuse to erode certain civil liberties with civil liberties with new laws and Hindenburg did nothing he would do nothing, really. I mean, he didn't like Hitler, but he did nothing politically to stop him. And he did nothing to, uh, to, um, you know, halt any actions by him or the Nazis. And this brings up, of course, my question I wrote down in my notes here was, could this have been stopped internally? Could it, the, the, the fire at the Reichstag, Hitler erode some civil liberties. Could anything have been done at this point? I think this is the first and arguably one of the last points that the German people themselves, especially the politicians that existed at the time, could have done something. Uh, and now, granted, I am not an expert on German law, especially not German law in the 1930s, but I got to think that there were laws on the books. I mean, you know, you're when you're talking about civil liberties here, this is a pretty cut and dry thing. I mean, I know that Hitler was going under the guise of, you know, there being an emergency and, you know, just, you know, kind of short-term actions, but this is, you know, Certainly, many people think, and I, 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 I agree with them, that Hindenburg could have put his fist down and said, no, this is not happening anymore. You are not going to be doing this. And 
but of course we're all we're speculating. We don't know that because no no one ever did any of that. And quite honestly, when you when you watch the series and you understand what they were talking about here, you know Hitler is already moving three steps ahead of everybody else. Anyway, they're looking at the civil liberties law. He's already moving on beyond that mentally in terms of what his next steps are. And you have to understand. Well, how does Hitler even get here? How does he get this kind of power? Because it's not just that he's some politician that showed up one day, made a lot of noise, and people put him in as chancellor. You have to understand that Hitler had a lot of power. And one of the themes we're going to talk about here is German pride. This is something that Hitler picked up on very quickly and used to his advantage to gain support. Because you have to understand that at this time in Germany, 1932, 1933, there is – the Nazis have mass support among the unemployed. Remember – Germany is a country that is economically broken. They owe tons of money to the Allies. They're in the midst of the Great Depression. No country is hit by the Great Depression worse than Germany. And they have it way before other Western uh, countries run into this. I mean, they've been, their Great Depression began almost immediately after World War I, whereas at least in the United States and, and other Western countries, you had, you know, the prosperity of the 1920s. But, um, you know, the Germans had, uh, the Nazis rather, had early support among Germans because of the Great Depression. And, you know, those who suffered from them were the ones that really supported Germany because, you know, to quote uh, one of the people that, that spoke on there, quote, it was the only party that promised to get us out of the hole. And for a lot of other political parties, there were many political parties that were out there, but no one really had the message that the Germans had, that the Nazis had, sorry, about the, you know, the mentality was about feeding the people and making things good again. And in a vacuum of ideas... The Nazi Party received support because others, other parties and other people were unwilling or unable to provide anything else. And and they talked about it. One of the civilians was talking about it that, you know, today it's hard to understand that mentality because that would never work. You can't – no one can run on, on that kind of a platform today in any country, almost any country, and, and, and have any chance of success to say that, well, I'm going to give you food and, you know, and bread and, you know, just get you out of there. No, that's not enough. But for – in 1932 – that was a huge deal for for the German people, especially you know the farmers, the 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 working class. This was huge, and this is what catapulted the Germans to the power they had in terms of uh, voting and and political support, because it was a a tremendous uh, political difference between the Nazis and pretty much any other political party out there, and. The, this mass support is something that, you know, basically they didn't – it's not that, the, that everyone who voted for the Nazis were interested in every single one of their ideas. They probably couldn't care less. They were more interested in you can get us food. You can give us money. Restart, restore our pride. That's all I needed to hear, you know, and everything else is just secondary. And we also see at this early point the first steps of anti-Semitism. And, you know, in, in early on in the episode – we hear many German Jews thought these anti-Jewish moves were the ideas of extremists and, quote, something Herr Hitler would put a stop to when he felt more secure, end quote. And you have to understand, and, and this is also hard even for me to understand, but in the 1930s especially, and even going back before, that anti-Semitism was very common. This is not the politically correct world that we have today. Especially in Europe, anti-Semitism is very commonplace. Uh, it's something that I think many Jews at the time almost expect to run into. Less so in Germany. Germany's usually been a a a country that was friendly to the to the Jews in general, in the grand scheme of you know relative to other European nations. Certainly, 
If you want to look at what was the worst European country for Jews, well, that'd be Russia. But Germany was, you know, a very moderate country in, in that regard. But um, it was, you know, the it, it still in general was something that I think many Jews came to expect, more or less, you know, that kind of anti-Semitism. But this kind of organized one was a little, was a, much of a surprise. And you, know, you start to see these initially just some basic laws coming in but the the turning point is in 1938 with Kristallnacht it's the beginning of the economic and political persecution of the Jews and this really histori historians often point to this as the turning point in the Holocaust the first real step the first overt action towards a final solution and it's it's the most one of the most disturbing things that are out there because before this the Nazis in, in Germany are kind of seen almost you know like oh that's cute Okay, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a country that is trying to get itself back up, get off its knees, stand up again. And for a lot of people, that is something that you see in this episode as something to be admired. Who doesn't want to have a strong nation? I mean, you know, nationalism is, is an important uh, factor for almost any country. And, you know, means to an end, well, you know, sometimes you can overlook some of them. But in this case, with Kristallnacht, it is a major turning point, and the global community now at this point turns its back on Germany, and you'll see why there's some other issues as well. But, you know, the the uh, it's a turning point really between Nazi Germany and the rest of the world, and this is this makes it crystal clear, no pun intended, as to what the Germans are up to, what their overall goals are. The, you know, going back to remember that, that quote earlier about, you know, Hitler would put a stop to this when he felt more secure, and this was just the move of extremists. We clearly see now this is part of their their uh, modus operandi, right? This is really what they're looking to do, and it's it's disturbing on a number of levels. And quite on, I mean, this is just the beginning. is is really the scary part. So it's uh you know we we start to see this, and this will become a regular part of this you know series where we look at the plight of the Jews and and what the what the Nazis do in order to subjugate them and ultimately wipe them out. So let's go to the next idea in this episode, something that I really wanted to, uh, the, I think comes out very quickly, which is the Treaty of Versailles. And this goes back to this theme of German pride. And, you know, this treaty, the Treaty of Versailles, is the pretext for pretty much everything Hitler did before the war. You have to understand what the, the Treaty of Versailles was. It was the treaty that Germany signed with the Allies following World War One. That just, I mean, they the Allies used this treaty as a means of punishing Germany. They wanted to punish them politically, financially, in any way they could because they felt that Germany was the uh, the one that started World War One, and they wanted to make sure they paid for it. So they took away German lands. They they uh, they made Germans pay reparations to the Allied countries. I mean, they broke Germany in in whole and in in money, which of course had major ramifications to its people. And you know, for for I think most people. Um, in, in Germany were, were just wanted, they, it's not that they, they felt it was unfair. It's one thing that you lose the war, hey look, there's, there's some consequence to it. I don't think anyone would have probably argued with that, but I don't think that what the, the, the role that Germany played post-war was appropriate for what had happened. World War I is a very different conflict than World War II. It was a brutal conflict, but it did not have the deep reaching total war ramifications that World War II had, but nonetheless, World War I was a major catastrophe for Europe. I mean, I mean, uh, millions died, and it was a terrible conflict, and the Allies wanted to make Germany pay and also, you know, punish Germany at the same time, and 
and you have to, you could do your research on, on the Treaty of Versailles, but it's interesting how Hitler used the treaty to be the pretext for pretty much everything he did up to the beginning of the war because, you know, most people in Germany thought, and most people outside Germany as well, thought Germany was restoring, not destroying the order and unity of Europe. And they were really, you know, this was just, well, what do you expect? I mean, imagine in the United States if somebody, you know, world, you know the United States had entered into war in, with Canada. I'm just going to make things up here. And uh, we lost the war somehow, and, and we had to give up, you know, uh, Washington State, Idaho, and the entire Pacific Northwest. Let's just make that up, okay? You know, people would say, well, you know, if the United States wanted to take it back because they thought it wasn't appropriate for it, I mean, that would be, you know, that's, that's nationalism. That's, that's, not, that's not us invading and taking over Manitoba. Right or or British Columbia. This is us, you know, the United States taking back what's rightfully theirs, and and that's what this is really was seen as when you're looking at Germany's reaction to the Treaty of Versailles. And we start to see as we move into the mid 1930s that that's exactly what Germany is doing. They are undoing the treaty very very quickly here and working towards not only undoing it but also moving past it. And the interesting thing also is. Another theme of this episode, and this it's only really in this episode, is how does Hitler actually come to power? This is something a lot of people always wonder. Is like, how do you how do you go from a German Republic to Hitler being your dictator? Because a lot of people assume that Hitler took over, you know, in kind of a in in a revolution, but it never it didn't happen that way. And he came up politically, but when he became, you know, he the Nazis come to power in 1932, but at the same time, the Nazi Party is not a consolidated party that Hitler runs. It's just Hitler is at the at the forefront of it. But there's still a lot of other, you know, politicians and people there vying for for that same power. And so in 1934, Hitler has the SR replaced by the SS, and you have revolutionary leaders eliminated and replaced by the SS. And Hitler uses this as an excuse to eliminate dissident forces. Basically he says that there was this uh counter revolution coming. He quashed it. And this was smart by Hitler on a number of levels. First of all, it allowed him to gain uh, power with the army. The army hated Hitler, and the army hated the Nazi party. And so what Hitler did was he, by getting rid of the SR, the army really didn't like the SR. It was this political, you know, uh, uh, military force. And by getting rid of him, the, the army said, wow, okay, well, you know, the, enemy, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And in this case, you know, that would be Hitler. And this was similar to what the... Uh, Russians were doing also in Europe, in, uh, in Russia with Stalin. Remember, Stalin was doing quite a number of purges as well, but I think the difference was, was that Hitler replaced the SR with the SS rather than having a, a vacuum of power in there. And, um, this leads us right to the next step, which is the death of Hindenburg. And Paul von Hindenburg dies, and this is the last vestige of old Germany. This is the last this Hindenburg was the only power, the only person who really could have stood up there and, you know, and proclaimed what the, what Hitler and the Nazis were doing was wrong and, you know, really enacted a, a countermeasure against that. But his death, I mean, it, it, it's the end. It's the end for any hope of a German Republic. Uh, Hitler, in fact, usurped power from the office of the president just immediately after he dies. And one of the smartest things he did, a brilliant move by Hitler, was he made the army swear an allegiance to Hitler by name instead of the state of Germany. And the reason why he did this was because the army, the German army at the time, the Wehrmacht, took oaths as almost physically real. And by doing that, it really solidified 
Hitler's role as dictator. I mean, there was just no question at this point. You know, if, if you had any inkling that Germany was maybe still a republic, it was gone at this point with, with Hindenburg's death. And this leads me to the, to this question again, the question we asked almost earlier. Could Hitler have been stopped at this point? Politically? I don't think so. I don't think that, when I mean politically, I mean with Hindenburg's death, I don't think there could have been a referendum or some sort of a political action, a bloodless action to stop him. I mean, you would have needed essentially a civil war at this point in order to happen because they have the, there's a, there's an election, uh, right after Hindenburg's death and the Germans are masters of ballot management and, and politics and you have a 90% uh, vote in favor of the Nazis, although they do note in the series that 4 million people still voted against Hitler. So it wasn't like it was 99%. But nonetheless, I mean, there was a lot of fraud. So obviously that 90% figure is grossly inaccurate. But there were still 4 million people that voted against him. And that's a, that's a sizable amount. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, 4 million in like China where you've got a billion people now. This is a much smaller country. I think at this point, he could have been stopped, but it would have required short of an international action, some sort of a civil war, some sort of a uprising by the people. But this is not a people that – I mean we're talking about this in hindsight. People at the time still I, – I don't think – I think the people that voted against him probably didn't like his methods but probably couldn't argue with his results. You know? So it's unfortunate, but you have to start you, – you, throughout this episode, I constantly was thinking about could Hitler have been stopped? Was there a point in which it could have happened – this to me is the line in the sand where it doesn't you you could not have stopped him internally anymore. After this point, this becomes an international conflict of some kind. So, um, moving on, uh, Hitler does uh, some more uh, consolidating of his power and control. We see new cultural programs. The mass rallies are really interesting. He does a number of them throughout the episode, where you know he he shows up late to build tension, and he's really a great political speaker. And this just goes to the Nazis being excellent masters of propaganda. That's really all it is. And you looking at this, you have to, you know, this is stuff that today is very commonplace. Back then, I mean, politics was still, you're coming out of a world of monarchies, you know, where, where politics is just a formality. You, you kind of literally throw your hat in the ring and you run for office, but there's, you know, you don't, there's no, there's no uh, pomp and circumstance to it. it. It's really a different, um, you know, it's it's a different kind of experience, and 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 in that regard, the Nazis really picked up on that very quickly, and probably that helped them so much. And if there was another political part doing what the Nazis were doing in terms of ballot management and propaganda, it might have been a whole different scenario. But nobody was keen to that, and we see that here with with what they're doing. But really, the the second half of the episode is about rearming, and again, um, this is a, moving against the Treaty of Versailles, and we start to see actions that are bringing us closer and closer to World War II. Now, the army began to swell beyond the Treaty of Versailles once Hitler came to power. They mention uh, that by the time, uh, I think by 1934, just two years after Hitler took power, the army had already doubled in size. But by 1939, this is Hitler's 50th birthday, the army was already seven times larger than it had been um, it compared to when Hitler took power, and certainly way beyond the, the confines of the Treaty of Versailles. We see in 1935, conscription is announced, so you have new tanks, the Luftwaffe was created, and the German Navy becomes reactive again. And this is a, this is one of the first flagrant violations of the Treaty of Versailles. And if you read the Treaty of Versailles, this kind of action should have required some kind of uh, countermeasure by the, the world community. I mean, it could have been uh, an attack, it could have been something. But they really, the world just ignored it. They just, and this is, I again, 
could Hitler have been stopped here? If you had taken at this point and said you broke the Treaty of Versailles here, you something has to be done, and that something has to be some sort of an armed conflict or a threat or at least an attack, you you would have had a far different conflict. Because Germany's not ready for war at this point by any means. Even Hitler knew that at the time. And if but of course he probably also knew that, that the UK and France and and the Soviet Union were absolutely not interested in any kind of conflict. In fact, that's a theme you're going to see up here, here until the start of World War II, where they're just appeasement, right? They don't want a war. They're doing everything to avoid it. And, okay, you know, if they want to build an army, a peacetime army, well, you know, that's their that's their thing. And um, it's interesting because, of course, Hitler also did some odd things by signing a naval uh, agreement with, with the U.K. to limit the size of the Navy, of course, that benefits Germany more than ever benefits the UK because German, the German Navy historically had never even remotely compared to the UK. So by limiting the Brits' uh, ability to build a Navy or a sizable Navy, you know, that certainly only helps Germany in the grand scheme of things. Um, but the, we, the, the real actions here, you know, growing an army is one thing, but using them is another. And we start seeing the reclaiming of German concessions. So Germans, as part of the Treaty of Versailles, had done a number of concessions and given up a lot of territory. And Hitler starts to work against that. First, we see the Rhineland, which was a part, a demilitarized zone that was essentially most of Western Germany, was demilitarized in order to protect France. Basically, if Germany couldn't put an army there, they would have an area of which a buffer between France and Germany, and that would help prevent any kind of conflict. Well, the Germans remilitarize it. They, their army goes jumping back in there. And once again, here's a mistake by the Allies. They do nothing. France does nothing. What they should have done was they should have attacked them. In fact, the Germans had, they mentioned in the episode, if, if there was any kind of movement by the French, they would have jumped right back over out of that demilitarized zone. But the French did nothing. And the next step is Austria is annexed. And once again, the European powers do nothing. But the real pivotal up to this point, you can make, there's a lot of hemming and hawing. It's like, well, you know, it is what it is. But Czechoslovakia is by far the, the big test. And Hitler incited the Sudetenland to join Germany. This is an area of Czechoslovakia that was that has some uh, uh, culturally German people living in there. Whereas Austria is really, you know, very much a German area, and and the and the Rhineland, obviously a distinct part of Germany. You can make arguments there that these are part of Greater Germany. Czechoslovakia is not part of Germany. Okay, it is the Czech people and the, and the Slovaks are. A very different kind of people. They have absolutely no connection to Germany other than the fact that they just happen to be in Central uh, Europe. But there is, these are not, this is not a German territory. And Hitler incites these people. And this is the first turning point because the Czechs want to fight. They say, no, we are not giving up territory because the, the, uh, the Germans wanted to annex the, the, the Sudetenland and take it for themselves. But the Czechs say, no, we're going to fight for this. But their allies, the French and the UK, once again, say, no, absolutely not. We are not going to fight that. We're not even going to uh, consider that. So instead, we have the Munich Pact in 1938, which strips Czechoslovakia of the Sudetenland. And, of course, this is the famous quote by uh, the uh, British uh, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, peace for our time, which essentially is we can achieve peace by giving up this. And this is the last straw. This is the... Uh, this is, you know, this is an agreement that's signed by, basically what it says is Germany agrees not to do anything else in terms of being aggressive and taking over land in exchange. We'll give you that, the Sudetenland that you uh, think so, so, uh, you know, you value so much. 
and it's pretty much um, it's the it's the last time the Allies appease Germany, but it's too late. I mean, it really is too late at this point because the next step is in March fifteenth, nineteen thirty nine. The Germans just take over all of Czechoslovakia because by taking the Sudetenland, Czechoslovakia was just stripped of it. And there's no resistance. And now, finally, the West understands. There is no, there is no appeasing Germany. There is no, this is not a cute little, uh, nationalist movement. This is a country hellbent on war, on conquest, more importantly. And, you know, this goes back to the theme of German pride. Why did Germany take Rhineland, the Rhineland, Austria, Czechoslovakia? It's about restoring pride. It's about making the Germans feel good about themselves, which is what, which is where the Nazis source their power from. That is what's really interesting about this because you see this rise of German support for the Nazis because they're doing what, what the people want. They want to have a, a powerful Germany once again because this is, you're, you're only 1930, let's say 1938. You're only about 20 years removed from the end of World War One, So this is not like generational. I mean, this is, you know, people still know this. Remember what the good times were like. And, and, and this is, you know, a, a country that, you know, so far Hitler has done nothing but, you know, restore what was properly theirs. And certainly Czechoslovakia was a little bit of a gray area for probably, for most Germans were willing to overlook it. Like, well, you win some, you lose some. And in this case, Czechoslovakia lost some. And, but, you know, there's still some German people there. So it totally makes sense. And the, the episode brings up this question, and it's a good question. Should one resist a ty- tyranny with no hope for success? I mean, I said earlier, I don't think they, there was no chance at this point for an internal revolution to, to counter Hitler. I don't think you would have had a really good opportunity to convince people of that, even at the time, because, you know, even though you had, you know, the four million or so that, that, that voted against the Nazis, I mean, to go to a to a revolution, to take up arms against your own people and fight, I think you need a little more than that. I don't. I really don't think in 1938 that that was really going to happen. And and I think that um, they may not be happy about it, but they didn't really see the 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 true nature of the beast. And I I, I really feel that the last chance that Germans had of counteracting the Nazis in any kind of with any kind of real chance of success was prior to Hindenburg's death. If you had Hindenburg at the helm and he could must because the army was really the power. And if he could get the army to, you know, have some sort of a coup, you could have prevented a a further action by the Nazis and you could have arrested them, you know, held them for trial, you could have gotten rid of them politically. Uh but it's it's too late at this point. And with Czechoslovakia it is now Germany versus the West, as we see. Um, and this leads us to the next step, which, of course, well, Germany's moving right along here. You've, they've, everything's worked out so far. And now the last step of undoing the Treaty of Versailles is they look east towards Danzig and East Prussia. This is territory that has been separated from Germany. It's over uh, near uh, the, the – it's actually surrounded by Poland. It's on the eastern front. And the Germans – want they they want to restore this territory danzig was an international city so they want to obviously annex it make it part of germany again and also they want to uh, provide a corridor of action there's a little little small uh, area of land between germany proper and this east prussia and they want this territory from poland to be given back to germany so that way they can have free access to it and the poles of course say absolutely not 
And this is the pretext for the Polish invasion in the beginning of World War II. Because Hitler demands the territory, Poland refuses, and this time the UK promises to intervene. This, they, they, they guarantee the Polish uh, territory. They, um, they, they are saying you are not going to, you're not going to take one inch of soil without us intervening on the, in this case. And maybe at this point you might as Germany, you know, rub your chin and say, oh, geez, I don't know about that. But Germany does another brilliant move. They strike a defensive pact with the Soviet Union. And this was surprising to everybody because Germany and, and Russia in general are not historical friends. They are, in fact, the, uh, the Nazism, um, fascism and communism are politically opposed to each other. They're on the complete opposites. Uh, fascism is, is, an, is an extreme right thought, and communism is an extreme left uh, theory. So, in fact, if you look up almost any of their um, uh, fascist or communist manifesto, you'll see that they're pretty much outlining each other as enemies. But Hitler and Stalin recognize that they are... Neither are in a position to really fight each other. Neither want to fight each other at this time. And it's only in their best interest not to fight each other. So a defensive pact is signed, and it is a brilliant move. Because at this point now, you have a Germany posed to attack Poland, a, a Russia that will do nothing to protect Poland's eastern front. And all you have for Poland is a promise by the Brits to intervene. But we are now on the precipice of war as we enter September 1939, and... It looks like the Germans are about to do to Poland what they do in Czechoslovakia. And, of course, the each this episode and each episode ends exactly the same way with a creepy ending. The, the endings of these episodes are always creepy. They're always hinting at what else is to come. Um, and, and I always find them really, if you watch them at night <laughs> in the dark, they're kind of scary because they, they forebode what is to come. And it's... Um, it, it, you, we know now war is inevitable. It's, it's coming. It's just a question of where and when it's going to happen. And for episode one, uh, a, a new Germany, we now see we've come, we've come to a, a completely different st from the start of the episode, which is a Germany that is politically divided and not really sure of what it's going to do to a dic full dictatorship that is, that has taken over a considerable amount of territory already in Europe and is now moving to ignite a major conflict between the, the uh, between Germany and uh, the Western powers. After watching this episode, I hope that you've come to the same conclusion as me, which is that wow, they 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 had a lot of information in one episode, and it is incredible when you really think about everything that 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 transpired here. It's it's really uh, first of all Lawrence Olivier who does the uh, narration of this is amazing, perfect voice for this. I wish I could he could narrate everything, but the you know, really, it's this theme of how did we get here? You know, it's it's almost like, if I could put this in the context of Star Wars, why do people, you know, find the interest, the, 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 the prequel so interesting? You know, so how do you get how do you get Darth Vader? How do you get someone so evil? How did they become? They're not just born that way. And that's true of this as well. Because we see this here where we, we find, you know, how does Germany go from a German Republic to a dictator, Nazi Germany? And here it's all laid out. And... It's really interesting to see all the steps and boy, what a, what an amazing first episode. I mean, I'm just, I, this to me has whet my appetite for more. I want to know, okay, now we're going to get into the war. Now we're getting into what's the next step. What happens when Germany tries to take Poland and how do the Poles respond and how does the West respond? 
And this is still, though, remember, this is still a regional conflict. Germany invades, let's say Germany invades Poland. Poland responds. Russians, we know, are not going to do anything. And UK and or France will intervene. This is still a European conflict. But it's about to become a whole lot bigger than that, as we'll soon see. But it's episode one of The World at War. Hope you enjoyed it. And, of course, uh, we would love your feedback, so you can definitely send that in there. So until next episode, I'm Matt Hotchberg, and we'll talk again soon.